This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to go back to gallery view. Nice to see all of your faces. I'm going to do a little scan through here. So I'd like to talk this morning and uh, to share some of the stories, some personal, some historical, some mythic that are uh, part of the research and writing that went into my book in the hopes that uh, sharing these will support um, an understanding of what I mean by a fierce feminine and how uh, that the reweaving of the stories of the uh, women who I'll speak to today and the qualities of this fierce feminine may support us, help us find our way through this dual pandemic of COVID and of 400 years of systemic racism in America. And I think I'll start uh, with a poem. This is a poem from Izumi Shikibu, who was one of the most renowned Waka-style poets in Japan. And she was well known for her life of both passion and politics. She was, as a young woman, uh, lovers with two princes two of the sons of the ruler of Japan. And um, her early poetry is full of uh, kind of passion and love. And in her later life, she converted to become a Buddhist. And this poem I'll read is one of my favorites. It's really uh, an expression of her understanding of awakening. And she writes, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. I love this expression of awakening in its 
kind of a wholehearted feeling of inclusivity, of fullness, of wholeness that she expresses. And as I was um, preparing for this talk, I was reflecting on my own early days coming to uh, Zen Center and remembering how I arrived at the doors of Zen Center quite world weary, in a way really quite sad, confused, trying to make sense of the suffering that I felt inside me and saw uh, all around me. And even though I remember when I arrived, I thought that the people who I met were sort of strange, you know, bald heads and strange costumes. I was so moved by the teachings, by the practice, and by this tremendous sense of welcoming. Really full invitation. For me, I felt so deeply how all of me, you know, the sad parts, the scared parts, the confused parts, were all invited in. And this invitation, this welcome, was so uh, deeply healing for me and continues to be. And I was reflecting how it is very much my wish that the, these teachings and practices will become increasingly open and welcome and inviting to more and more people so that others like me can experience this kind of profound inclusion, including all of our parts. So I lived at a Zen Center at Green Gulch Farm and Tassajara for about five years, from about 1987 through 1992. And uh, I left uh, when I did because I fell in love and met my now husband, Eugene, and uh, went back into the world. One of my, one of my um, favorite parts of the practice, that many of you I assume know well, while I lived at Zen Center was the practice of chanting and bowing to the lineage. I had, um, as a young uh, woman, I had a very um, kind of very logical, rigid in many ways, mind. And yet there was something about that practice of 
reciting these names and bowing, you know, forehead to the floor, lifting the hands. That showed me something about a quality of teaching that was not so logical, not so linear, but deeply impactful. And I remember how I felt and feel still today this, the feeling of all those beings who go back and back and back 2,600 years, all those diosho's who literally I felt like they, they had and have my back I felt this deep sense of belonging, not just to the community that I entered, but to this long tradition and history. How much I loved saying their names, bowing, acknowledging, thanking. And how I loved learning their stories. It was a lot of what we did when I spent the years I did at Zen Center was studying the stories of these ancestors and how they were <laughs> sort of quirky and um, they weren't polished. They had distinct personalities. They got confused. They struggled just like me. They were real people. And how I found inspiration in the ways in which they woke up, in which they found their slice of freedom. So about maybe two years or so after uh, I left Zen Center, I was invited to come back for a part of a practice period at Tassajara. And uh, it was very vivid, you know, that cool, dark morning in the early service, the bowing and chanting, the sound of the bell, like we just were hearing now. And at the end of doing the recitation of the diosho's of the uh, ancestors, this new chant was announced, that new to me, probably not new to many of you anymore. But it was the first time I had heard the introduction of the uh, women ancestors. And uh, I was very surprised. And I remember, you know, I had the diosha's memorized. They were in my body, you know. But the women's names, the acharyas, I didn't know and I couldn't find them in the book. <laughs> Frantically, some of you may have that experience looking through the chant book, trying to find the page. And I remember I just gave up, I closed the book and I put it down and I just listened. As the voices in the hall recited the names of all these women. And when the recitation ended, uh, I burst into tears. Sometimes we don't know the parts left out. We don't know what we're missing until 
It's right in front of us. Or in my case, until these names were literally ringing in my ears. And in some ways, that event was one of the, one of the things that inspired me to write the book that I did. And I do think it's worth doing a call out here because I'm not the first one to uh, kind of dig and search and find the stories of these uh, women practitioners. I'm pretty sure, at least what I remember um, at the time, that that recitation of the names came out of a class that had been taught by uh, Linda Ruth Cutts. And that in the course of this class, she and the students in the class did the research to find, to recover, to reclaim these names and the stories that went with them. And there are, uh, in many Buddhist traditions, but certainly in the Zen tradition, Susan Moon and Florence Kaplow, Grace Shearson, there are others who've written accounts of uh, women teachers in Zen. And the same is true in other traditions. So I'm grateful to those who uh, have done some of that work and whose work uh, I, my own, my own history, my own telling stands on. History is very much shaped by those who recount it, by those who write it down. And many of you may know that the um, early Buddhist teachings for hundreds of years were passed along in an oral tradition. So nothing was written down. It was passed along through recitation and memorization. And when the teachings were first written down, uh, they were done, that was done by male monastic scribes who, as is often the case, held positions of power and privilege. And so the history that they recorded was shaped by their perspective, by what they included and by what they left out. And if you read those early texts, as I have, you will see uh, that they are shot through with misogyny and that the women, if they're included at all, kind of flit around the edges of the stories of the life of the Buddha like shadows. One of the least recounted women in the history of the life of the Buddha uh, was his wife, Yasodhara. In the early texts, she's often not even referred to by her name. She's just uh, called the mother of Rahula, who was uh, the son of Gautama and Yasodhara. 
And when I did, uh, when I was writing my book and I was uh, learning a bit, just a little bit about the history of these women, um, I ended up telling their stories as uh, historical fiction. I uh, learned as much as I could about them and then retold their stories in first person because so little is actually known about them. So little of their stories are told in their own voices. So it's interesting, I think, that um, much is made of what the Buddha said. And we know that we, in this spirit of resting back into this long lineage of ancestors, we rest on these astonishing, beautiful, profound teachings. And the Buddha is known mostly as uh, a great sage, as a great spiritual teacher. But I think it's useful to consider not just what the Buddha said, but also what the Buddha did. And in many ways, in addition to being a great sage, the Buddha was also a social revolutionary. He created a sangha, a community that was very much a kind of subculture within the time and place in which he lived, where the culture was marked by a strict caste system. And one was born into a caste and that became essentially one's fate. And in his own Sangha, the Buddha changed that. Whatever caste one was from, they were welcome. They were perhaps as I felt wholeheartedly invited in. It is painful in many ways to recognize how little has changed, how the caste system then, which was, I have been doing more research about this, it was then very much based on skin color, how that same caste system continues, persists today. So my hope is that by offering some uh, teachings, these reweavings of these stories of some of the women, that we can learn something about how to dismantle these systems of 
oppression, of racism, of violence, and give birth to communities, systems, institutions that are, as Izumi Shikibu suggested, more inclusive, just as the Buddha did. Many of you know a beautiful phrase from Dogen Zenji, who says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And part of our studying of ourself as we sit is not just to sit and find a sense of peace and contentment, but to actually turn and face, to be present with our own body, heart, mind, with the histories that shaped us, with the understanding that until we face, until we see and see through our own karma, our own karmic lineage, then we remain bound. And in the same way that that's true for us individually, the same is true for us collectively. That if we don't turn and face our collective history, we remain bound. There's a beautiful quote from uh, one of my great heroes. I think of him as a great bodhisattva, uh, Brian Stevenson, he's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. And he says, I should say a little, for those of you who don't know who he is, he spent his lifetime uh, looking to dismantle systems of oppression and specifically to bring to light parts of American history that have been shrouded, that have been overlooked, that have been ignored in many ways. And he says, I don't ask America to turn and face its history because I want to punish America, but because I want to liberate America. If we're not willing to turn and look, we can't be free. He has another quote, which is my current favorite. And it describes in some way the real dilemma that we face that even if we dismantle the systems, the structures, that there is a kind of deeper dismantling that needs to happen in our own hearts and minds. And he says, even though, speaking of the Civil War here, he says, even though the North won the war, the South won the narrative, that even though 
we know that there are changes in laws and so on that happen very slowly in the United States, that the narrative, and really he's speaking to the underlying narrative of white supremacy, which is just to say that white bodies are considered the standard against which everything else is measured as less. And all of the harm that comes from that for everyone. So as I said uh, at the beginning, uh, I want to share in particular uh, a couple of stories really focusing on uh, Pajapati, who was the Buddha's aunt, as an example, as an embodiment really of uh, the fierce feminine and as a way to help us begin to see our way through to discover how we too, or to discover what's needed for us too, individually and collectively, to face our individual and collective histories and to work as our bodhisattva vows demand, suggest, invite, however you want to say it, how those vows point us toward liberation, not just for me, but for all beings, with this deep understanding of our, of our interconnectedness this deep understanding that I can't wake up and be free while other people suffer. This is so much at the heart of this practice. And it has been in many, many ways, the kind of, um, that teaching in particular, the archetype of the Bodhisattva and the Bodhisattva vows have been since 30 plus years ago when I arrived as a sad, scared, confused young woman, that has been very much my compass. It has informed <laughs> everything I've done since then. So Pajapati was um, the Buddha's aunt. And as many of you may know, his mother, uh, Maya, died very soon after he was born, perhaps of uh, complications of childbirth. And so she raised him as her own uh, son. And I'll read to you a poem that really expresses both her compassion, her deep compassion, and also her wisdom. Book. And this poem is uh, from a book that is a recent translation of the Terigata, the poems of the uh, awakened women who became eventually part of the Sangha, which I'll speak to a little bit how that happened in a few moments. But first, this poem from uh, Maha Pajapati. You know, Maha is great. So as a, before she joined the Sangha, she was known as Pajapati and when she eventually became the founder of the nun sangha, her name was changed 
she became Maha Pajapati. Now her poem is called Protector of Children. And this is written late in her life. And I'll just say that for me, this poem very much expresses uh, this concept in Zen of Robaishin, this grand motherly mind, this deep heart of care and compassion for all beings. So here are her words. I know you all, I have been your mother, your son, your father, your daughter. You see me now in my final role, kindly grandmother. It's a fine part to go out on. You might have heard how it all began, how when my sister died and I took her newborn son to raise as my own, people still ask, did you know then what he would become? What can I say? What mother doesn't see a Buddha in her child? What can I say? What mother doesn't see a Buddha in her child? He was such a quiet boy. The first time he reached for me. The first time I held him while he slept. How could I not know? To care for all children without exception. To care for all children without exception, as though each will someday be the one to show us all the way home. This is the path. She was an exceptional uh, woman, as you can hear in her words. But she was not only a kindly maternal figure or grandmother with a big heart and a compassionate vision. She was also steely, gritty, resolute. And in the story of the founding of the nun Sangha, and I will say as, as a caveat here that this story probably tips more into myth <laughs> than it does history. And uh, there have been, there's been some recent research in particular by uh, Venerable Analyo, who has kind of uh, said that it's very unlikely that the story I'm about to tell actually happened. But I do, so I wanna say that out loud, but also to say that the real history, history that's recorded, which is always partial, and mythic story, they're both different kinds of truth. 
And that mythic story points us to something about our potential as human beings. So I invite you to listen to this story with uh, that perspective. So the story goes that uh, Pajapati traveled hundreds of miles multiple times to uh, beg the Buddha for admittance into the Sangha. And traditionally it's said that three times she asks him and three times he says no. And in mythic language, three times basically means a lot, many. And there's beautiful language if you look closely at the story, which is that she comes and asks the Buddha to please be allowed to join a life of homelessness, to join his community. And he says, no, do not set your heart on this Pajapati. Do not set your heart on this Pajapati. But her heart is set. So she is in this way embodying not just this kindly, compassionate heart, but a firm, resolute heart. She doesn't crumble in the face of the difficulty, in the face of multiple rejections. She stays true to her path. And the story goes that in the, uh, the third time she comes to ask, she brings a crowd of women with her and that they have all walked barefoot through the dust hundreds of miles. And then after she's rejected this third time from the Buddha, that um, these women are gathered outside the gates of the community and um, Ananda, who is the Buddha's attendant, hears their cries. And I think this is an important piece to underscore because Ananda is a very interesting character. He was the Buddha's cousin and um, like lifelong attendant. He was the one who ran the interface between the great sage, the great teacher and the community. And I don't know if it's true, but I always imagine him as this kind of kindly uncle. You know, it's said that he suffered quite a bit because he didn't have that fire of some of the other monks. And it was years after the Buddha's death until he was finally awakened. So he was this very kind figure who smoothed, ruffled feathers held the hands of those who perhaps were anxious or afraid. And Ananda, interestingly, was also known for this prolific memory. And so when we read the text, the teachings of the Buddha and the Pali Canon, they come through the voice of Ananda. Uh, the suttas open with the words, thus have I heard. And those words, that's Ananda speaking to us. But it's important here because Ananda wasn't just 
someone who repeated what he heard, he too embodied this quality, what I'm calling a fierce feminine. This combination of this gentle, tender heart and a kind of fiery grit. So Ananda hears the cries of these women and he doesn't turn away. He turns toward the suffering and he asks, he educates himself, he learns what is going on here. And they tell him, we've traveled hundreds of miles and we want to join the holy life. And he is touched. He allows himself to feel the pain of their pain, but he doesn't crumble. He uses that pain, he feels it deeply, and then he too sets his heart. And he goes and he, <laughs> he confronts the Buddha, which was a bit of a surprise from this kind of character, you know, who's been the attendant for all these years. And he challenges him and he says to the Buddha, didn't, wasn't Mahapajapati the one who raised you at her own breast? You know, like her own son. The Buddha says, yes, he, what she was. But he's still not going to let her in. <laughs> and then Ananda says, well, isn't it true that uh, women can equally, you know, have an equal opportunity to awaken as men? And the Buddha says, yes, that's true. And he kind of, Ananda pins the Buddha in a corner and he says, then how can you not let them in? And so that in this story or mythic story is the turning point. But Ananda becomes the advocate and ally for those whose voices are not being heard. That this combination of kindness and steely fortitude is what precipitated the change that needed to happen. I love the fact that it's Ananda as well as Mahapajapati who embody this quality that I'm speaking to of this fierce feminine. And he seems to me that along with Mahapajapati to show us how we too can find our way to turn and face exclusion, injustice, oppression. And in Ananda's example, we see that the first step is to be willing to hear the cries, not to turn away. And not to hear them once, but to hear them again and again, to stay with it until something changes. So not only does he hear the cries, but he also is interested enough to ask, to learn, to understand more about the situation. What is going on here? This is very much at the heart of the work of uh, Brian Stevenson, who I quoted. It's his work to bring forward much of 
American history that has been buried, has been hidden, just as many of the stories of these women were buried or overlooked or unseen, unheard. So he hears the cries, he educates himself, he learns, and he feels the pain. This is such an important step. We're not gonna solve the problems in our world cognitively. <laughs> we have to allow that pain to be felt in the heart to be embodied and then not to crumble under the weight of it, but to allow it as was true for Mahapajapati, as was true for Ananda, to set our own hearts. So that we too can find our own way to speak, to engage, to act. As the Buddha did, as Mahapajapati did, as Ananda did, we can feel ourselves in this lineage so important for our time and place. This is what it means to inhabit a bigger sky. That phrasing, uh, which is the title of my book, is from a Zen story. And in the Zen story, it's described that uh, there's, we're all looking at the sky through a pipe. I often say a straw, all looking at the sky through a straw. And is that the sky we see? Sure it is. Is it the whole sky? Absolutely not. And so our practice, our practice is at an individual level to soften, not to hold on, not to insist that our inevitably limited partial sky circle is the truth, the whole truth. Because when we do that, we know what happens. We have sky circles, you know, crushing into one another. We have division and divisiveness, hatred, violence. And so we practice this understanding that we are all living inside of a narrative a narrative that has been shaped by our personal history, by our collective history, and that we can learn to see and see through, to find our own slice of freedom as we recognize the ways in which we're bound. But no matter how soft, no matter how spacious our little sky circle may become, it's so important that we recognize that it's only together that we see the whole sky. That all of our views and opinions about how it is will always be limited 
that we, this is so beautifully described in the heart of the Bodhisattva vow, that we need each other, that we need this kind of radical inclusivity to see the whole sky. So maybe that's a good place to stop, as my clock says, we're at the top of the hour. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.